Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Hey, I want to thank everybody who helped out in our bag hunger outreach this last weekend for the Covington Food Bank. We've raised over 3,600 pounds of food for the food bank, so that's and we still have food coming in, so that's really cool. And all the artists who showed up and displayed their art at our Fall for Art, that was a great thing as well. And uh, lots of good things going on. So today's message is entitled From Read to Rock, A Journey Through the Wall, and is the first in a series uh, on the spiritual journey that we'll be doing over the next few weeks. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and head to the talk, North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. I was going to sing a song this morning that was tied into my message, and I thought I had a guitar player, and I found out like about 15 minutes into worship practice that I didn't have my guitar player, so um, not his fault. He had emailed me. I just didn't read his email. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that stuff. It's that stuff. Um, but I'll read the words to you. Sometimes it's fun to just read lyrics to a song anyway. Uh, This is tied in with the messages that I'll be speaking on today. I once was, this this is a song that I wrote a a few years back, and yeah, that's all I'll say. This is called Grace Is. I once was confident that I had the strength to run, to stay by your side until the kingdom come. But the testing of my courage and fires of adversity prove that in my own strength, I'm still your enemy. This sifting has revealed I'm not as good as I believed, but the end of myself is where I start to see. Yeah, I'm a broken mess, but that's all that you need. To the poor in spirit, you give the kingdom keys. Grace is a constant wind a-blowing over the troubled waters of my soul. Faith is raising up a sail, releasing the oars and letting go. You call a man a rock when he's but a fragile reed. You call a man to talk when he stutters in his speech. You hear a song when I can't form a melody. You cause me to see through impossibilities. Grace is a constant wind blowing o'er the troubled waters of my soul. Faith is raising up a sail, releasing these oars and letting go. Today, I'm going to start a series on the spiritual journey. And we're going to probably be in this series, I don't know, haven't worked out the details yet, but probably up until uh, Thanksgiving. And I think that this is a a series that is going to, you'll you'll find very helpful whether you're a new Christian or whether you've been in this thing uh, a very long time. Uh, We're going to try to locate where we are on the journey. And and I'm intentionally using the word journey because I think journey is one of the best words to describe this thing of following Jesus that we are trying to do together as a church. You know, I've I've received many good gifts from, you know, I've, I've been raised in evangelicalism and I appreciate a lot of things that evangelicalism has to offer like a, an emphasis on sharing your faith and and scripture 
But one of the unfortunate uh, side effects of evangelicalism is that uh, an unintended consequence of, of the way that faith is often portrayed is that faith is looked at oftentimes as just getting the right beliefs locked down so you can go to heaven when you die. And that's the main emphasis. And while there's, there's something to that, that's a very small slice of the overall picture. And so we're going to look at faith as a journey, as a pilgrimage, as uh, moving towards something. And I think that that's what journey speaks of, or pilgrimage. I, I like the word pilgrimage as well. You're intentionally heading in a certain direction. And though you may hit trials and bumps along the way, though you may have mountains and valleys, that you, you, you keep going in that direction. And so to, to talk about the spiritual journey today, I'm going to look at one of my favorite characters from the Bible. Um, you know, when I look at it at the last decade or so of you know, the movies that I've, not only movies and TV shows that I like, but not, not only like, but the ones that I can watch over and over again, like, you know, brother, oh brother, where art thou? Yeah. I'm like a kid with a little Disney flick when that one comes on. I know all the lines. <laughs> <laughs> but when I think of the movies and the TV shows that, that I don't mind watching again and again, one of them is, is The Office. Any fans of The Office in here? The cool thing about The Office for me, and, and, and a lot of the, the TV shows or movies that I don't mind watching again and again, and, and in our house, like for years, we watched The Office all the time. Ezra would come home from school and watch two episodes of The Office before he'd start his homework. And um, I think he actually put his teacher's stapler in a thing of jello one time as a joke that he learned from The Office. Um, but one of the things I like about The Office is that the characters in that show, they all seem like legitimate people you run into in life. Or if you work in an office, you're like, yeah, that's so-and-so right there. They're identifiable. And I think that's one of the things that, in spite of all my uh, problems with the Bible, you know, because it, as I've shared recently, you know, the Bible, it's, it's, it's a difficult book. But I think one of the things I love about the Bible is that there's all these real characters in it that are relatable. And I think that's probably one of the, the biggest indications that this book comes from God, is inspired by God, because if you and I were to invent a religion today and come up with a sacred book, we would have left out people like David, you know, who cheats on his wife and kills his best friend, and, and we'd leave out the part of Moses, you know, murdering somebody before he, you know, or, or, or Abraham lying and saying his wife is his sister. We would leave out all that stuff, and we certainly would have probably left Peter out. And Peter's the guy I want to talk about today. And I think one of the things I like about Peter is not only is he identifiable, but we can get a big slice of Peter's life from the moment he follows Jesus uh, all the way up through the later stages of his spiritual journey. And I think as we look at Peter, we can each kind of look at, kind of locate ourselves on the spiritual map, so to speak, and find out where we are. So, without further ado, I'm going to uh, jump into the life of Peter, and we will co cover much of Peter's life this morning. Um, based on this, the stuff that we can find in the Gospels. 
So I'm going to touch on a lot of scriptures, but I'm not going to read them so much. I'll just, you can go back and read them yourself. I'll give the uh, crispy paraphrase of these Bible passages. So in Luke 5, 1 through 11, we have the call of Peter, which at first his name is actually Simon. And Simon is a, is a name that, that its meaning is read. So if you think of a reed growing out in the swamps, there's not a whole lot you would do with a reed, right? I mean, you, I don't know, make a straw hat or something, uh, make a decorative bouquet of something to stick on a table. But a reed is not a terribly useful thing outside of thatched huts and straw hats and stuff. But that is Peter's name initially, Simon. And we know that Simon was a fisherman on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He fished for a living. That was his vocation, his job. How many fishermen do we have here? Here, Anybody like to fish in here? One person? Okay. There you are, Floyd. All right, we got a few. We got to reach more fishermen. This is not good for a Louisiana church. Um, I like fishing. And I've been invited by people to go fishing. And sometimes when people invite me to go fishing, they're like, yeah, you know, I just love sitting out there in a boat with my line in the water. And I'm like, yeah, that's like, that doesn't do it for me. I like the kind of fishing where you throw your line in the water and you catch fish. Like, I'm into that. So if you're ever doing that, invite me. If you're going to like sit in a boat for eight hours with your line in the water, call somebody else. But as much as I would find being out in a boat all night and catching nothing a bummer, if that was my job, my vocation, what I had to do to provide for my family, that would be very difficult. And this is where we pick up the story of Peter. He's been out in his boat on the Sea of Galilee all night and hadn't caught anything. And he's coming into the shore in the morning, and there's this big crowd that's starting to gather on the shore, and they're there to hear this this rabbi who's been making the rounds around the villages on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a guy named Jesus. And Jesus comes up to Simon Peter as he's pulling his boat up. He says, hey, you, you think I can step into your boat and we can push out so I can address these crowds better? And, and Simon says, sure. So Jesus gets in the boat and he says, Let, let's push out a little bit further. By the way, Simon, uh, did you catch any fish tonight? No, thanks for asking, Jesus. He says, well, try throwing your net over the other side of the boat. And so Simon throws the net on the other side, and immediately the fish start swarming into the net so much that he has to get help on pulling it in, and the net starts ripping. And it's at this point Peter realizes that he's having a holy moment, and he falls down and says, go away from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. I love that. Like, God knows how to connect with us. And oftentimes, God connects with us right in our vocation and our passion, the thing that, that we do. We often think that God's going to connect with us and, you know, kind of, you know, retreats are good, church services are good. But, but oftentimes, we want to confine God connecting with us to these kind of spiritual moments when oftentimes, God will actually reach us in our vocations, in our passions, in the things that, that we do. And that's exactly what happens to Peter. Jesus knows how to get his attention. And so Peter's like, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, this is my paraphrase, you think that's hot stuff? Follow me, and we're going to catch people instead of fish. And so Peter drops his nets, and he follows Jesus. 
And this is one of the most admirable things about Peter. Because I think most people, if Jesus came up to you in the middle of your work and said, hey, I want you to step away from your job and follow me. Where are we going? I don't know. We're going to catch people. I think most of us would probably go, can I get back with you? You know, I'm sure... Simon knew who Jesus was. Jesus had a reputation. I'm sure he respected Jesus, but he just drops his nets and follows Jesus for the next three years. No guarantees, nothing. And that's a commendable thing. Most of us would probably analyze it to death and then figure out, you know, can, can we get back to you in a couple of weeks, Jesus? And, and Jesus would be long gone. And who knows, that probably happened to some other people that didn't make the story. But over the next three years, Peter will follow Jesus. He will be there for the turning of water into wine in Cana. He will be there for the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness. He'll be there for the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He'll be there for the Sermon on the Mount. He'll be there for the healing of blind people, lame people, uh, lepers. He'll be there in all the public ministry, but Peter will also get to experience the Jesus that very few people get to experience those walks down long, dusty roads from village to village, those fireside chats at the end of, at the, end of the evening after they've been doing a long uh, day of ministry and they're sitting around a campfire. Peter gets a window into what Jesus is like. Are, are you ever jealous of the disciples, you know, being able to be with Jesus for a few years? I am. I mean, I think I'd probably be a little bit better at this faith thing if, if I actually got to hang out with physical Jesus for a few years. Like, I think I might have a better handle on this, right? And yet, after three years of hanging out with Jesus, Peter has great spaces underneath the surface of his life that have yet to be transformed by God. It is possible to go to church to have a vibrant prayer life, to be involved in ministry, and yet to not experience transformation in the depths of your heart. It's absolutely possible, even when you're around God in the flesh. And this is what we see going on with Peter. But I'm stepping ahead a little bit. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Uh, this is cl close to the end of Jesus' earthly, earthly ministry before he goes to the cross. And, oh, wait, wait, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Jesus, and this, this again is, is close to uh, the crucifixion as well. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter from the Greek word Petra, which means rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. How many of you, when you were growing up, were the teacher's pet in one or two of your classes? Brandon? Oh, yeah. Penny? I bet you were, right? 
Okay. <laughs> Penny was probably up there on the front row, right? Okay. I, I, was, um, I was not. <laughs> I, I was not typically the teacher's pet. I was not typically the one who wanted to answer questions when called upon uh, because oftentimes, most of the time, my answers would be wrong. And, you know, nobody likes to, you know, answer questions wrong. But I do remember what it was like on the very few rare occasions where I was called upon by a teacher and I had the right answer. And isn't that the coolest feeling ever when you get the right answer publicly? And that's what's happening with Peter in this situation. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo, Peter, you got it right. You got the right answer. And guess what? You didn't think that answer up yourself. It was revealed to you by God. And this is where it gets cool because he says, no longer are you going to be called Simon, a reed shaken by the wind. Now you're going to be called rock. Now, we all have a tendency to get a little bit puffed up when we get the right answer publicly. But then when God says, I'm building my entire church on you, rock, uh, yeah, I, I imagine Peter immediately got a swelled head. Why? Because he feels like he can tell Jesus what to do just a couple of verses later. So when we pick up uh, a few verses later, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yeah, rebuking God. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow, what a turn of events. At one moment, Peter is getting uh, congratulated by Jesus from hearing from the Holy Spirit about Jesus being the Messiah, the Christ. And then the next moment, Peter is antichrist and standing in the purposes of God and rebuking Jesus. And that's a wonderful snapshot of Peter's life. And that's why I find Peter so relatable because, yeah, I can identify. One moment I'm hearing from God, the next moment I'm standing in God's way. But I think it's interesting in this passage, Jesus changes Simon's name to Rock. Now, now Simon does not look like a rock at all here. <laughs> So there's, there's, but, and, and to, to be transformed from a reed into a rock is going to be a painful process, which is what I want to get into next. In Luke, Luke 22, verse 31 through 34, this would be not very long after this. Jesus is having uh, Passover with his disciples. This is where Jesus introduces communion. And over dinner, he says, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. I think we like to imagine that when the enemy comes for us and Jesus sees it, that Jesus will go, Satan, I rebuke you off of that, my child's life. 
And this is not a very encouraging word. I don't think anybody's putting this word up on their mirror in their bathroom. (laughs) Satan desires to sift you like wheat. (laughs) And I'm not rebuking him. I'm praying for you. (laughs) But I think it's an interesting thing. Jesus uses this, this analogy, this metaphor of wheat. If you wanted, if you were in the first century Palestine and you wanted, you harvested a, uh, some wheat and you wanted to make some bread or plant some more crops, you had to do something to that wheat. You'd bring, the, bring in the sheaves of wheat and then you would beat the sheaves of wheat. You, it's, a, it's a very violent process because you have to shake the kernels of wheat free from the chaff, the outer coating which has protected the wheat up to that point. The outer coating has a purpose in shielding the, the kernel. But ultimately, there's no nutritional value in it, and it will actually stop the process of reproduction or, or, or uh, get in the way of making something like bread out of it. So Jesus is telling him, you are a kernel of wheat. You and the other disciples, you are like wheat kernels, and Satan is coming to sift you. But I'm praying that once you're done, you can actually be made into bread. You can actually strengthen your brothers. This is going to be a difficult process. And the problem is Peter is so out of touch with stuff underneath the surface of his life, he thinks that he has what it takes. He thinks he's got this. No, these other disciples, they're probably going to deny you. I'm pretty sure that Thomas guy is. He's kind of shifty. He's always talking about doubts and stuff. But I'm going to be with you to the end, Jesus. I don't matter. I don't care if, they, if I have to suffer, even die. I'm going with you to the end. Jesus says, I'm sorry to tell you, Peter. Not only are you going to deny me, you'll deny me three times. And one time is going to be in front of a little girl. But Peter doesn't believe him. Because Peter actually is just not in touch with anything. I've used this analogy on on many times, but I will use it again. Because it's good, and I haven't found a better one. If you were to approach an iceberg out at sea... You might see a little piece of ice sticking, you know, 10 feet out of the water and think, oh, a cute little piece of ice floating out in the water. Except for the fact that that little bit of iceberg that you see is only about 10% of the whole iceberg. So that thing may go down another 100 feet. It may be, you know, 100 feet wide. And the same thing goes for people. There's only a little bit of our lives that we are consciously aware of. I mean, even studies on the brain say that most activity that happens in your brain is at a subconscious level. You're not aware of all the processes going on in your operating system. There's all these things going on. And guess what? These processes were formed in your life many, many years ago when you were a child. And they have to do with your family that you grew up in, the experiences that you had, both good and bad. They have to do with the, the way you were formed by our culture and society and, and all the things you've experienced. And that goes into to determining how you react to things. But most of us are completely unaware because these processes just go on in the, in the operating system of our mind. And so we are only living in a, in a, in a small piece of, of what we're aware of. And then when you mix in with that, that, that most of that, or a good chunk of that stuff that people see is really just our ego, right? It's your Facebook profile. You know, have you ever noticed people don't post that many pictures of Insta- on Instagram of them 
first waking up in the morning without makeup, with their hair a mess, you know? I mean, most people don't do that. <laughs> and if they do, then you start going, what's wrong with you? <laughs> no, if we're, if we're going to put a picture up on Instagram, we want the lighting right. We want to be in our, our best outfit. We want to look interesting and cool, and we might, might want to put a filter on it. You know, we want to totally make this thing look, you know, this idealistic way as if people don't see our actual selves when we walk around. Um, no, I don't see too many people on Facebook posting videos of them arguing with their teenagers or their spouse. You know, we, we don't. We like to hide that stuff and put out this other version of ourselves that's interesting, that's cool, that, that looks nice, and, and that's what we'd like people to know. But the problem is sometimes we buy into our own hype, and we think that all that is us. But it's not. There's a lot more to us beneath the surface. And really, if you look at that part of your life that is sticking above the surface, a lot of that is what we would call chaff. It's just externals. And here's the deal. The chaff in your life has served you a purpose. You know, when you experience hard things as a kid, sometimes you develop. I mean, if you look at comedians, uh, some of the most greatest comedians there are out there, uh, Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, some of these people are tortured souls, and they develop comedy as a way of coping with their life. That's where the good comedy comes from. And so, so we develop strategies to get us through our childhood, and those things are important, but at some point, you've got to take that outward coating off and get down below the surface and start dealing with, with, with what's in here. And that's where the spiritual journey uh, really comes into play. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we did our Tom Petty liturgy, um, I, I shared a little bit about my recent experience with a, a wall in my faith journey, but, uh, I, and I referred to the stages of the spiritual journey. I read a book a few years ago. Dina and I went through a two-year training uh, to become spiritual directors. And um, one of the books that we read was called The Critical Journey. And the authors of this book studied uh, and, and kind of pulled out some things from, from studying people's spiritual journey. And they kind of put the spiritual journey into six different stages. Now, before I get into this, I want to make a, a, a statement on this. These, these stages are not linear. Like you can say, oh, got stage three behind me. I'm going on. They're, they're cyclical. So in, in a way, you will keep going through these things. So don't look at this as like, you know, I'm, I'm working my way through some kind of hierarchy and one day I will arrive. Uh, they're kind of cyclical. So the first three stages of the spiritual journey are awareness of God, conversion. Number two would be discipleship. Number three would be the active life. I think if you ask most pastors, at least evangelical pastors in the United States, what is the purpose of the Christian life? They would say these three steps. You get saved, you get discipled, and then you start serving in church. And if we can just get people there, that's great. And that's, that's pretty good. I mean, that, that's, that's definitely part of it. The only problem is, between stage three and stage four, there's a wall. And this is one of the great disservices, I think, that evangelicalism or, or modern Christianity in the West doesn't tell people there's a wall. And so when you hit that wall, and you've not been told there's a wall, you start thinking there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with God, or maybe this whole thing is just um, not true. But there is a wall, and every one of us has a wall. 
Actually, every one of us will have multiple walls if you're doing this thing right. <laughs> You'll have multiple walls. And that wall can come from a divorce, a, a, a betrayal. It can come from economic hardship. It can come from the loss of a loved one. It can come from a disappointment. Maybe something didn't turn out the way you were hoping it would, and it throws you off. Maybe it's a job loss. Maybe it's economic hardship. But whatever that wall, whatever precipitates the wall for you, you know you're in the wall when the things that have worked for you up to that point in your Christianity stop working. Maybe you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe you just can't get anything out of the Bible. Maybe church just doesn't do it for you anymore. But things just stop working. And there's three main ways of dealing with the wall. Some people, when they hit that wall, they just bounce off and they bounce out of church. I think when I look at the... uh, at Western Christianity in this country, you know, the, the w- people are leaving church faster than they ever have, particularly millennials. And it's not that millennials are, are, are not believing in God anymore. They just, it's just like it doesn't work. It seems irrelevant. And, th- and oftentimes, that's the conclusion you make when you hit the wall. It's like, ah, the Bible ain't working. The prayer's not working. I don't know if I believe this stuff anymore. I'm just going to have a privatized spirituality. And, and, and so that's what they do. But they cease to grow they cease to be changed. There's no intentionality in their lives uh, ab- about religion anymore. It's more just kind of uh, pseudo. The second group is people who bounce off the wall and they still keep coming to church. This is why sometimes you'll see a person who's been in church for several decades, but they are emotionally adolescents. They're stunted. They haven't, they've, they've ceased to grow. They keep showing up to church because there is social pressure or some sense of obligation, but it, it doesn't do anything to transform them on the inside. But then the third group is the group that when they hit the wall, they work to go through the wall. And for those that will do the hard work of going through the wall, they get to enter into the second three stages of the spiritual journey. Actually, between stage three and stage four is the wall, but stage four would be the inward journey, and that, that is actually caused by hitting the wall. So stage four and stage three actually kind of overlap, but it is the inner, inward journey that actually causes you to deal with the stuff on the inside and actually make your way through the wall, because really that wall is not so much out there, it's in here. <laughs> So Peter's hit a wall. He's come face to face with the fact that he's not as courageous as he thought he was. He's not as good as he thought he was. That he has totally deceived himself with his own ego. I remember reading a study a while back. Um, I think it was uh, at Princeton back in the early 70s. Princeton... Theological Seminary, they decided to do an experiment to see how many seminarian students, seminarian students uh, would actually live out the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so they told these seminary students, we want you to go from this building to this other building. But they didn't tell the seminary students that they would have a person in great physical distress sitting in a doorway between the two buildings. So they would have to come face to face with somebody that was suffering. Would they choose to just go to class and give their presentation or would they stop and try to help the person that was suffering? 
And in the initial results of the group, 60% or so of, of, of these seminary students actually stopped to help the poor guy. That's pretty good. Well, they decided to ramp up some of the variables a little bit, put a little time pressure on them, like, uh, you need to get over there pretty quick. And the next group, by putting some time pressure, it knocked them down to 40%. And then the final group, uh, they said, you should have been there like 30 minutes ago. You're late. By applying that kind of time pressure to them, that knocked the numbers down to 10% of the seminary students actually stopped to help the poor guy in trouble. They chose, you know, meeting the deadline or, or going to the class. And when I read something like this, I don't know if you're like me, I kind of always like to assume that I would be the guy that stops for the the poor person in trouble, right? I would like to think that I'm that guy. Like, I would choose him over turning in an assignment. I, I might, because I might get a bad grade on the assignment, even if I turned it in. But statistically speaking, most of us wouldn't. That's the truth. What is the statistic out there? I love this one. The majority of people think they're over average intelligence. But that can't exist, right? Because, okay, we got some intelligent people in here. We overestimate our own morality, our own goodness, our own courage if we haven't been through a wall. If you've never been through a wall, if you've never been through a hard experience, you're going to overestimate how good you're going to be at dealing with circumstances. But when you face the darkness within your own soul, when you face your own brokenness and you face, uh, and, and, and this is where religion is not terribly helpful, at least certain versions of religion, because so often religion is just another way of acting like there's nothing wrong with us. I remember my early years in charismatic Christianity, it was so frustrating because you'd come around people who are obviously sick and, and be like, dude, you look pretty sick. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing fine. Praise God. God is good all the time. Well, you look like you're, you're sick. Like, I mean, you, you got a fever and you look like you're in distress. Oh, I'm not speaking that over me I'm like speaking it over you it's already happening (laughs) and so so often religion comes a way to actually deny reality particularly the harsh realities on the inside that we don't want to face and so religion becomes another drug to escape what, what reality is and I see people addicted to religion as much as they're addicted to heroin or anything else and it has the same effects But when you face a wall, you have to face the darkness in your own soul and own it. This is the kind of person I am. That doesn't mean you get your identity in it. It just means this is what I'm capable, and I know that now, and I know I need the grace of God to change these things. Peter hit that wall. And I want to pick up Peter's story again. I I won't read this, but in John chapter 21, this is after Peter has denied Jesus three times and run away, dejected, weeping bitterly. This is a few weeks later, after the resurrection. Where do we find Peter? We find him back in a boat, fishing again. And I suspect Peter's out there fishing in the boat again because he thinks he's disqualified himself from ministry, because he's seen his own darkness, and he's like, I can't do this. I'm not courageous. I failed Jesus when Jesus needed me the most. And maybe some of you feel like that right now. When in reality... Peter's like in the best place he could be coming to that awareness. If you have never faced your own darkness and brokenness, it is a gift. It doesn't feel like it at the time. But it is a gift in the long run. We pick 
in John chapter 21, Peter's been out all night again, fishing in the boat, hadn't caught anything. He's coming into shore. And as they're coming into shore, he smells the smell of grilled fish and biscuits. And he sees a guy out there on the shore with a campfire. And the guy calls out, hey, you catch anything? No, thanks for asking. Try throwing your nets over the other side. And Peter throws his nets on the other side, and it's like Woodstock for fish again. The fish just pile into the nets, and Peter has that moment. He's taken back to to the, the way he felt when he first encountered Jesus those years before. Peter drops the nets, jumps in the water, swims to shore. And what we see at shore is Jesus has cooked his disciples a a breakfast of fish and biscuits. I like to think of them as biscuits at least. Mm. This is the point in the message where you start talking about food and people start just tuning you out. Um, But but I love after, after the breakfast that morning, Jesus looks at Peter And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. He asked me again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. And Jesus asked a third time, Peter, do you love me? And I love Peter's answer the third time because it is so insightful to what has happened on the inside. He says, Lord, you know all things. I love you. I, but I think what Peter's answer, if we were going to translate uh, the, the, in, into to modern English, I think what Peter's saying is, Lord, I think I love you. But judging by my actions lately, I don't know if I love you as much as I think. That's the answer of true humility, not false humility. We false humility is gross, right? You know, you get around somebody, oh, I'm just a worm. You know, God loves me, but I'm... That's, that's gross. True humility is going, God, you know all things. I think I love you, but I don't, I don't, I don't know how, what the extent of that even is. When you get to, your, to a place in your faith where you can be honest, and God can do a lot with you. And this is Peter going from a reed to a rock. Now Peter is actually, after he's faced his own darkness, now he's starting to look like a rock. And when we pick up this story in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter looks like a completely different guy. He's not afraid of what people think. He is, he is standing up for Jesus in a big way. Now we will get to some more of Peter's journey a little bit down the road. But I just want to end with this. In a sense, this message is a message about hope. When we think about the word hope, how do, how do we use hope in our regular day lives? It's kind of like, yeah, it's wishful thinking. Like, oh, I hope so. Yeah. I hope things work out. We got our hopes up. It's kind of like, ugh. Especially when you compare it to a word like faith or love, you know. Hope just sounds like, eh. And yet, hope is actually the manifestation, the fruit of faith that has gone through the fire. 
So when you've gone through a wall, when you've faced your own darkness, when you have come through the other side of it, you realize the next time you hit a wall, yeah, walls are never fun, but you realize God's going to do something in this. There's a crazy verse, James 1, 14, or 1, 1 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may mature, complete, and lacking nothing. I'll, I'll give you a little example from my own life, and we'll wrap this thing up. I know we're running a little late, but... Um, as I mentioned a little while ago, <laughs> we had a bad situation ha- happen with our condo, and it seems like a bad situation happens with our condo in Kenner every year and a half or two. Uh, it, I'm not a good landlord. I, I don't like doing it, but we had a particularly bad situation where we got left stuck with a couple of months worth of rent that wasn't paid and a lot of damage, and I've been trying to get the place ready to sell. And I, I faced a similar situation like this about three years ago, and it really messed me up like I was under the stress and anxiety of this thing and it it really set me back a good bit for a few months but having just come through a a, a wall recently (laughs) I found myself there in Kenner doing something I hate. As I said earlier, I'm not very good at details and I find that I'm having to do a lot of detail stuff with painting and trying not to mess stuff up. I like the kind of, you know, what's that that guy that throws the paint on the... Yeah, I like that kind of painting. But I've seen a real change in myself that I I, I can actually identify with this, this crazy passage in James. I'm sitting there painting and I'm like, you know, Dina and I were having a conversation one night. She goes, why do you think this keeps happening to us? Why do we keep having problems with these condos? Other pastors who go to plant churches, they have these amazing stories about we decided to plant a church and our house sold without us even putting it on the market. And here we are. Eight years later, and we can't get rid of this thing. What What is God trying to do to us or say to us or what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if he's trying to say anything, but I don't want to waste this experience. I want to learn everything I can from the Spirit. And so, as I'm painting, I'm just like, God, all I can do with this is trust you. All I can do is surrender. All I can do is show up to class. And this is what the last thing I want to say. How do you get through a wall? Number one, you don't go it alone. If you find yourself going through a wall today, if you are hitting a place in your faith journey where nothing makes sense anymore, don't go it alone. I think my most recent wall, which, by the way, was about a three-year wall. um, (laughs) I'd like these express walls. Those would be a little bit better. Um, But my most recent wall... I can tell you one of the biggest keys in my life is I've not gone it alone. I've had people in my life that I can be open and honest with that don't get freaked out at my doubts and my questions and whatever. There's people walking with me. Bless Dina for walking with me all these years. Uh, She's really helped me out in that. Don't go it alone. I think this, and the second thing would be keep showing up. I think a good analogy for this, you know, I've been married 20 years now. There's sometimes when, you know, we've got newlyweds here. There's sometimes when, as a married couple, you don't feel like loving the other person. You're not feeling it like you felt it, you know, like this person's getting on my nerves. 
There's times where when you're married, you start going like, did I marry the right person? Or was this just, you know, uh, seemed like a good idea at the time? I mean, you will hit those spots where you don't feel it. But you keep showing up, right? You keep showing up even when you don't feel it. Because that's the right thing to do. And I think even when our faith journey comes in, you got to keep showing up. Show up to class. And I don't, I, don't, I don't mean just keep showing up to church. You show up to class and you just say, God, what do you want to teach me today? Help me to learn what your spirit is saying. Help me not to waste my trials, but to, to get what your spirit is saying. You keep showing up. You do it with other people. And then the third thing is you engage in the inward journey with maybe some other helpful people like a spiritual director, a therapist, or something like Celebrate Recovery, a 12-step program. You know, sometimes we need help to get at these things beneath the surface, and it's not a shameful thing to go to a therapist or a spiritual director or find some, something like 12 steps that, that will help you deal with these things. Just don't waste the wall and bounce off of it. Actually deal with the stuff within. All right. So there we are for the spiritual journey today. Um, didn't work on my ending very well. <laughs> Why don't y'all stand up? Let me pray for you. And me too. Lord, I pray that wherever we tend to find ourselves in the spiritual journey today, Lord, if, if we find ourselves in the midst of a wall experience, a sifting, a testing, Lord, I pray that you'll give us the grace to keep showing up and learning from you. I pray that your spirit would have its work within our hearts. Lord, for those who are struggling with the walls alone, I pray that you would help them find other people to do their journey with. Lord, for those who've been through walls, I pray that you would help them to walk with others. And for those who've not been through walls, God, I'd help you. I, I pray that you'd help comfort them and, and bring awareness to them as they do face things in the future, Lord. Lord, today we take our hands off, we surrender to you, we stick up the sail and ask for your spirit to carry us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you got kids in the other building, I've gone over. Tell them, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Well, I'll try not to. God bless y'all. Oh, I went over 15 minutes. It's a long message. I covered the entire life of Peter, though. Yeah,